Deuteronomy 19, 16 through verse 21. Our subject, perjury. Deuteronomy 19, 16 through 21. If a false witness rise up against any man to testify against him that which is wrong, then both the men between whom the controversy is shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges, which shall be in those days. And the judges shall make diligent inquisition. Behold, if the witness be a false witness and hath testified falsely against his brother, then shall ye do unto him as he had thought to do, to have done unto his brother. So shalt thou put the evil away from among you. And those which remain shall hear and fear, and henceforth commit no more any such evil among you. And thine eye shall not pity, but life shall go for life, eye for eye. Tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. This law against perjury is one of several statements of the law in Scripture. For example, in 1912 Leviticus, we read, And ye shall not swear falsely by my name, neither shalt thou profane the name of the Lord thy God, I am the Lord. Again in Deuteronomy 17, verses 6 and 7, at the mouth of two witnesses or three witnesses, shall he that is worthy of death be put to death. But at the mouth of one witness he shall not be put to death. The hand of the witnesses shall be first upon him to put him to death, and afterwards the hands of all the people. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. Then in Proverbs 19.5, a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall not escape. Again in Proverbs 19, verse 9, a false witness shall not be unpunished, and he that speaketh lies shall perish. Finally, another statement, one among many, in Proverbs 25.18, a man that beareth false witness against his neighbor is a maul and a sword and a sharp arrow. Over and over again, in verse after verse, the Old Testament condemns perjury. The New Testament again emphasizes this. A few of the many verses condemning perjury in the New Testament are Matthew 19, verse 18, Mark 10, verse 19, Luke 18, 20, Romans 13, verse 9, and many other passages. Because biblical law rests not on coerced self-incrimination, but on honest testimony, any perjury constitutes the destruction of the processes of justice. As a result, biblical law regards perjury as an extremely serious offense. In fact, the law equates perjury with blasphemy. I cited 
Leviticus 19, verse 12. In this verse, we are told that perjury and blasphemy are basically the same offense, since it is God's justice which is offended by the perjurer. As a result, the priests, according to the scripture we read, have a part in the procedures of the court. The oath taken by the witness before he testifies is an oath before the priest and the judges, and we are told it is unto the Lord. In other words, it is taken before both kinds of ministers. That is, all civil officials, all judges, are ministers of justice. Priests or ministers of the church are ministers of grace. Therefore, to emphasize the seriousness of the oath, the biblical law requires that it be taken before ministers of justice and ministers of grace. To emphasize it is unto the Lord. Moreover, it makes clear what many other passages emphasize, that courts are inescapably religious establishments. The law they administer represents a religion and a morality, and the procedures of every courtroom rest on the integrity of the oath. If there is no integrity, no faith behind the oath, then the testimony lacks any integrity also. This is why humanistic courts are doomed always to decline in integrity, to collapse finally into radical injustice, because under humanism every man is his own law and every court is a law unto itself. We've never had in history perfect courts. But whenever we have had humanistic influences at work in the court, the courts become not only imperfect, they become instruments of injustice. And today, because humanism is the religion of the land, courts today are ugly things to tangle with. The likelihood of justice is a rarity, and it is usually a freak where conflicting elements enter into a situation when justice is administered by the court. The oath and the law in every country are religious. When you alter the religion behind them, you have a society in revolution. Chief Parker, a few years ago, before his death, remarked that the real revolution was the legal revolution. And he was so right. The basic revolution today is the legal one. And the reason for that legal revolution is that there is a different morality and a different religion now that is the established religion and morality of America. As a result, because of this fact, and because the biblical law emphasizes so strongly the religious character of the court and of the oath, 
perjury is a religious as well as a civil and criminal offense. Biblical law requires the strictest honesty where testimony is required. We have seen previously that there are certain kinds of testimony that cannot be required. There are certain kinds of privileged communication, certain kinds of persons who cannot be compelled to testify. But where testimony is required, the strictest kind of honesty is religiously required. Moreover, the presupposition of all biblical law is individual responsibility, individual guilt. In fact, you cannot long have a law system if you become environmentalist, as we are becoming. If you become environmentalist, how can you punish a criminal? How can you have a law system? You simply destroy everything. And biblical law more than any other law the world has ever seen, in fact, the only law the world has ever seen which fully and clearly emphasizes individual responsibility and guilt. The Bible is not an environmentalist book in its explanation of sin. In Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, as well as in Deuteronomy 19, in the passage we read, we come across the very important statement, So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. What does that mean? Now, we have in our English grammar many words that are understood. You don't say them, but they are understood. If I say shut the door. The word you is understood. Now, in this passage, the evil, one, is understood. So if you were to translate it in terms of its literal meaning, it would be, so thou shalt put the evil one, or the evil person, away from among you. In other words, evil is personal. The idea that is so popular today, love the sinner and hate the sin, is an impossibility from a biblical perspective. There's no such thing as sin or evil in the abstract. Sin and evil are always a person. Always a person. So if you're going to hate the sin, you're hating a person. Similarly, in the Lord's Prayer, when we pray, deliver us from evil, again, our English fails to convey the literal meaning. Literally, because of what is understood there in the word. The meaning is, deliver us from the evil one. In other words, from Satan and anyone who serves Satan, anyone 
who is evil. C.H. Waller, an Anglican scholar of over a century ago, pointed this out in commenting on these two passages where so thou shalt put the evil away from among you is given. And he said, the evil, and I quote, the Greek version renders this, the wicked man. And the sentence is taken up in this form in 1 Corinthians 5, 13. And he shall put away from among you that wicked person. The phrase is a frequent occurrence in Deuteronomy. And if we are to understand that in all places where it occurs, the evil is to be understood of an individual and to be taken in the masculine gender, the fact that seems to deserve notice in considering the phrase, deliver us from evil in the Lord's prayer. There is really no such thing as wickedness in the world, apart from some wicked being or person, unquote. In other words, evil does not exist. Sin does not exist in the abstract. When we are confronted with sin, we are confronted with a person or a person, and we must deal with that person. The environmentalist approaches sin as though it were something in the abstract. He detaches it from the person and places it in the environment. Now this still does not make it impersonal. This was, of course, the theme of Satan. If you place it in the environment, where are you in actuality placing it? On the person of God. Because God is ultimately our environment. He is the one who has made all things and ordained all things. Scripture declares, known unto God are all his works from the foundation of the world. So that when we blame the environment, we are saying ultimately with Satan as he spoke to Eve. It is God who is at fault. God who is the sinner. Thus, the environmentalist is always at war with God, and he blames God for everything. Furthermore, the penalty for perjury, according to our text, is life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. As I pointed out before, this does not mean that you literally gouge an eye for an eye. I think this point has to be stated over and over again, because even fundamentalists who claim to be Bible-believing have insisted that the meaning is literal, and therefore we should no longer obey it. The reason for this is that they are dispensationalists and antinomians. They don't believe in the law. And therefore, while claiming to believe in the Bible as the infallible word of God, they wipe out most of it with their dispensationalism and their antinomianism. And therefore, they work to make it ridiculous. 
But even G. Ernest Wright, a very able scholar, although quite modernistic, while writing in the Interpreter's Bible, admits that you cannot take this and re reduce it to torture or gouging out eyes. He comments, the principle of an eye for an eye is that on which Israelite law is based. It is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted principles in the Old Testament. Owing to the fact that it is popularly thought to be a general command to take vengeance, such an understanding is completely wrong. In neither the Old Testament nor the New Testament is a man entitled to take vengeance. That is a matter which must be left to God. The principle of an eye for an eye is a legal one which limits vengeance. It is for the guidance of the judge in fixing a penalty which shall befit the crime committed. Hence, it is the basic principle of all justice which is legally administered." Unquote. If there is to be any justice at any time, it has to be in terms of this principle. Thus, in a case involving a capital offense, perjury was punished by death. In a case involving restitution of a thousand dollars, the perjurer was fined a thousand dollars. This principle of restitution for perjury in terms of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was once the basic premise of American law with respect to perjury. As I've stated before, in colonial America and in early constitutional America, the biblical law was simply made the law of the land. It still survives in bits and pieces. To this day, in Texas, this is the law, although it is not important. It is on the books, however. And in a case involving a capital offense, the death penalty is still the law for perjury in Texas. It used to be the case in California also. And not too many years ago, in the late 30s, in a California court, it was stated, and I quote, It is time that the citizens of this state fully realize that the biblical injunction, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, has been incorporated into the law of this state, and that every person who, having taken an oath that he will testify, declare, depose, or certify, truly before any competent tribunal, officer, or person, in any of the cases in which such an oath may by law be administered, willfully and contrary to such an oath, states as true, any material which he knows to be false is guilty of perjury and is punishable by imprisonment in the state prison for not less than one nor more than fourteen years." Unquote. Thus, while in California the law had been altered, it still prevailed to a limited degree fairly recently. As a matter of fact, in many states, 
any decision was rendered null and void if the prosecutor deliberately used perjured testimony knowing it to be false. It was regarded as nullifying the justice of the case. This is how strictly the law regarded perjury. The death penalty for centuries from biblical times to the present was mandatory in most of the world in capital offenses involving any perjury. Then again, the law concerning perjury says very definitely, Thine eye shall not pity. Verse 21 of our text, Thine eye shall not pity. The law forbids pity toward the perjurer. Pity toward someone who is an evildoer is a revolutionary emotion. We fail to realize this, but pity, if it goes toward a lawbreaker, is always a revolutionary emotion and a revolutionary act. But, Whenever you see in a society, whether by popular expression in comments or in the press, or today in novels, television, movies, pity for an evildoer expressed, you must recognize it for what it is, a revolutionary emotion and act which is being cultivated. But anyone who expresses pity for any evildoer needs to be told they are a revolutionist. This goes, too, for those who say pity or love the sinner but not the sin. They are revolutionists whether they know it or not. Most people are party to revolution without fully realizing what they are doing. Then we must recognize further, as we consider again the fact that evil is personal, the Lord's Prayer has the petition, Deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one. Evil is personal. Immediately after that petition, what do we read in the Lord's Prayer? For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. We saw a couple of weeks ago as we studied the witness of the false prophet that the claim of the false prophet in every age is that evil is Lord. Evil is God in effect. It is Satanism to affirm that conspirators rule the world, that evil governs all things. And so the petition in the Lord's Prayer has relationship to this. 
Deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. So at one and the same time that we ask for deliverance from Satan, we must affirm the sovereignty of God. We are not delivered from the evil one. And we are guilty of perjury. We bear false witness if we do not say God is on the throne. His is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. No man and no power neither Satan nor any combination of men can take from God what is his. It is perjury ever to hold so. It is blasphemy of the most fearful sort. The law was given to us thus by God who is sovereign. It was given to us to cope with the evil one and the evil one. We are therefore to apply the law. We are not to pity the evildoer but the victim and to move against the evildoer. So thou shalt put the evil away from among you. It is that simple. God has given us a plan for conquest. Therefore, when we pray, deliver us from evil. We must never give to Satan power and dominion which are not his. For then we commit the ultimate perjury. And the ultimate true witness is to say to him, indeed, as well as in word, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we come to thee to bear true witness that indeed the kingdom, the power, and the glory are thine. Make us, therefore, people of thy law, so that we may put away the evil one from amongst us, that we may put away all his cohorts, and without pity move against them. Make us ever mindful, our Father, that our hearts must be filled with pity for thy people, for the victims of the evil one. That we are to move, O Lord, in obedience unto thy word, to enforce the law in every area, knowing that thereby, O Lord, we shall see the triumph of thy kingdom and the manifestation of thy power and thy glory. Bless us, O Lord, in our law keeping. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are there any questions now? First of all, with respect to our lesson. Yes.
Yes, the question is, why does the Catholic liturgy eliminate the doxology at the end of the Lord's Prayer? We have the Lord's Prayer in the Bible in two forms. We have it with the doxology in Matthew, and without it in Luke. Now, the liturgy of the Catholic Church, as well as the Episcopal Church and other churches, in the past, and some to this day, has used the Lord's Prayer in both forms, that is, with the doxology and without. When it is used without the doxology, it is normally so used because there is going to be a doxology or an ascription or a benediction shortly thereafter. So to repeat a doxology or a benediction or an ascription twice is thought un uh, unwise at that point. The priest who told you it was not in the Bible and not original was obviously a modernist because at one time it was used in both forms by the Catholic Church. Yes. Uh, there are ancient documents that do not have the doxology, but these are defective manuscripts. Yes. Defective, yes. In other words, what they are doing, and I've mentioned this before, but it is worth re-emphasizing. The habit of the scribes in Old Testament times and the monks and copyists in, in Christian times has been to copy word for word. Then having copied, to go back and read back and forth from one person to another to make sure that every word was there. Then to go through and count the letters to make sure that not an extra letter was there. Now it is very easy to leave out a line. When you type, very often, when the same word or two or three words are at the beginning of two lines, your eye jumps a couple of lines and you find out that you've left out a couple of sentences. This often happened in copying. What they did under those circumstances was to put the manuscript away that was defective. Later, if they needed it, they would wash that manuscript. It was a difficult process to wash and to bleach it because they used such indelible ink in those days and dust. But to bleach it and wash it and to reuse it. Now, in many, many old monasteries, those defective manuscripts are still there, kept because they never threw anything away. And some of them never did get reused. Scholars, as they go to these manuscripts, they know they are defective, but they use them deliberately and then turn around and tell you there are so many thousand, look magazine, as I've pointed out some years ago, 
had an article about 20,000 variations. And these variations re represent defective manuscripts. The received text is exactly as the King James gives it to us. This is why the King James is the most trustworthy. It does not involve this kind of juggling with doctored manuscripts. Unfortunately, most of the biblical scholars in supposedly orthodox or evangelical seminaries have been trained by these modernist scholars and go along with it. There are very few, almost none, who have refused to go along with it. Dr. E.F. Hill, who has written on King James Version Defended and a number of other excellent studies, is the most notable scholar in this area, and no one knows the text better than he does today in any theological camp. Yes.
every case of a haunting they find some evidence of a great crime or evil in the place, so that it clearly represents evil persons or an evil person. Yes. That's possible. possible, but this is a realm of conjecture, so it's not very fruitful to investigate or explore. There's been a lot of investigating here, and none of it comes up with anything that's too conclusive. Yes. I don't quite was that part of it is of the Levite and part is what? Well, of course, we can't separate the religious and the civil because the civil is equally religious under God. Now, uh, let's turn then to, say, the civil official and the Levite. When we studied taxation, we saw that there are two basic kinds of taxation, the poll tax or head tax of every male over 20. This took care of civil government, the court, basically. The other tax was the tithe, which was paid to the Levites, of which one-tenth went to the priests for the purely religious work. The rest went for the general kind of government which was done independently of the state, education, health, welfare, and so on, all of which constitutes a form of government, you see, a very real government. And as I pointed out on several occasions, until fairly recently, doctors were a part of a religious establishment. Hospitals were exclusively operated by religious bodies. Only lately have hospitals become separated from a religious institution, a religious establishment, from tithe money. And schools originally were entirely independent of the state. Only in 1834-35 for the first time were state funds appropriated to support schools. This is a point many people miss. For example, some people have claimed they, that there were public schools before Horace Bank. Well, of course, there were laws requiring education for everyone. The old Deluder Act, for example, education history book sites in uh, colonial New England in the very early years in Massachusetts Bay Colony they passed the old Deluder Act as it was called 
requiring that all parents educate their children, lest that old deluder Satan uh, work his will amongst us. Now, it was one thing for the law to say every parent had to educate their children. Another for the state to say, it's our business to do it. That didn't come until Horace Mann. So how did the parents educate their children? Well, the tithe money created the school. So you had a government without the state, you see. And this was true in one realm after another. All these independent agencies were interlocking and the state might require that every parent have his child in the school, but the state didn't support the school. The state didn't control the school. The state didn't set the standards for the school. Do you see something of the interdependence, interpenetration, and yet actually lack of state control that was involved in this kind of situation. Yes. Well, look at it from another perspective. Now, not only in the colonial period, but after the enactment of the Constitution, you have the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance specifies that a sizable section of every new territory had to be put aside for education, for schools. This was before there was ever such a thing as a public school. Now, the reason was not that the state felt that uh, we control the land and therefore we'll give it and it's a subsidy, but the premise was the earth is the law. And God wants a portion of it to go for godly purposes. And the Christian school is one of the most central of godly institutions. Therefore, before anybody else gets the land in a new territory, the Christian school has got to be there and take its choice and get a sizable chunk. This was not, you see, a subsidy from the state. It was a recognition of God's prior ownership of the land and that the earth is the Lord. Well, the reason for it was this. They knew that people were sinners, and supposing they were settling a territory, they might take the best land and leave the swamp for the Christian school, you see. So, in each area, a section was set aside from the beginning for the school. It's interesting to know, by the way, that the colleges and universities uh, clear across the country were Christian. As, uh, well, California. Uh, the University of California was, first of all, a Christian college. Later, the state took it over. But it was started as a congregational college. College of California. It's come a long ways in the wrong direction since then. Except they weren't starting in the government. They were starting with a faith. You see, this is what we have to understand. In other words, it wasn't the priority of the government there. The government was saying by the Northwest Ordinance that God has a priority. This is the point. They were starting from the priority of the faith. 
Bless you and keep you, guide and protect you, this day and always. 